Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Jonathan Garb, who teaches at Hebrew University. Here to talk about his new book, Yearnings of the Soul, Psychological Thought in Modern Kabbalah, published in 2015 by the University of Chicago Press. Jonathan, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So, Jonathan, maybe you can start by briefly telling us what is Kabbalah, or Kabbalah, as we might say here. Well, the Kabbalah is, uh, literally means reception, so it presents itself as a tradition, uh, but if it first appeared in writing around the 12th, 13th century in Europe, in uh, southern France and in Spain, even though it probably goes back earlier, just like it perceives itself to be a tradition, but we don't know exactly how far. And it, the Kabbalah presented itself as a secret, esoteric, hidden meaning of the Jewish tradition, that is, that the Bible, the Talmud, the classical works of the Jewish tradition, they have a hidden layer, a hidden meaning, and that can be uncovered through the Kabbalah. And so there's, what is sort of modern Kabbalah, which is an area that you've had particular interest in? Well, my own specialization, as you say, of modern Kabbalah, it really starts with the 16th century, not so far from where I'm sitting now, a a couple of hours driving north in Galilee, in the city of Tzfat or Safed. There was a set of mystical circles that developed there uh, after the main Jewish center in Spain was dispersed, the main center of Jew- Spanish Jewry was dispersed and Jews were expelled from there. And a couple of generations later, the, a new center arose, in, at least of Kabbalah, but not only Kabbalah, in the Galilee, which was, of course, the home of other mystical traditions, like that's where Christianity started, uh, as maybe as this kind of prophetic movement messianic movement, and there was really a prophetic, messianic, mystical movement uh, which started there in, in Sfat. The great luminaries of modern Kabbalah evolved there, and this is the tradition which has really been dominant in the world of Kabbalah for the last 400 years or so, till this very day. And so, your book argues that there's a thread in modern Kabbalah and modern mysticism uh, that, that goes through these last five centuries, and that is psychology. What, what do you mean by that? Well, the idea is, it's true that there is, I feel that one of the great shifts from pre-modern to modern Kabbalah is a much greater focus on the individual and therefore on psychology, on what's going on inside the individual, the inner life of the individual. And this isn't only a shift, by the way, in Kabbalah, it's something which happens in the modern world in general. Now, in the case of Kabbalah, it means a special interest in the soul, where the soul comes from. So let's say the doctrine of reincarnation of souls becomes very strongly developed the idea that you can diagnose the health of the soul, you can look at somebody's forehead and so on and diagnose the state of their soul. The idea that each individual soul has their own interpretation, their own unique way to interpret the Torah, the Jewish tradition. And also the idea that each soul has a really a purpose, a mission, uh, what's called a tikkun, uh, something to rectify, to fix in the world. And that the totality of tikkunim, of rectifications of all the souls, will eventually bring, out, bring about the messianic era. So this whole complex of ideas around psychology, it existed before, but it was very strongly developed from the 16th century onwards. And again, this, as you said, it, this runs through 
like I said, just to this very day, because the works that Kabbalists are studying here in Jerusalem, in other places, in Israel, in New York, elsewhere, in Paris, in the Kabbalistic centers, these are the texts, the main texts they're studying are the texts which were written in the Galilee in the 16th century. Now, have people noticed, you know, a relationship between Kabbalah or mysticism and psychology before, and how is your approach sort of different? Well, I think there's been uh, at least a hundred years of interest in this topic, in how Kabbalah relates to psychology. The the people who founded the, the discipline, like Gershom Scholem, that I metaphorically, when he's in his his chair, the founder of modern Kabbalah study in, here in, in Israel. Um, these people were certainly aware of this link between psychology and Kabbalah, and it's interesting that modern Kabbalah research began at the same time, more or less, in the same countries even, like Germany and Central Europe in general, of psychoanalysis. So people were aware of this connection. Now, the usual approach is to interpret Kabbalah according to the ideas of psychoanalysis. So the assumption is that psychoanalysis offers some kind of universal truth, which is true for all times and all places. And therefore, it's logically, it follows that the Kabbalah, the text of the Kabbalah can be, can be interpreted according to Freud or Jung or other psychological systems. What I argue is, is uh, I take, call it the, the path less taken, the road less taken. That is, I say, let's first of all understand how the Kabbalah itself defines its own psychology, how the Kabbalists, as I said, how they reflect on what the soul is, where it comes from, where is it going. And then we can see if we can compare this to ideas which are found in Western psychology or Buddhist psychology, for that matter, or any other psychological system. But we shouldn't give priority to any psychological system. And this goes along with my second argument, that both Kabbalah and psychoanalysis, or Western psychology in general, are products of modernity. That is, modern Kabbalah is, is deeply uh, embedded in the modern context, just like psychoanalysis is. So what we have here, if we find similarities, it's often because these are two expressions of a modern focus on the individual that we're all part of. We're all part of this very strong focus on the individual and the inner world of the individual. With the focus on the individual, have we lost sight, though, of the idea of a soul? Well, one of the arguments in my book is that part of the, the move in psychoanalysis was to present itself as a scientific system. And in other systems of psychology, like behaviorism, it's taken to far more extreme lengths. That is, the idea that there's no such thing as an inner life at all. So in psychoanalysis, of course, they do insist that there's an inner life, that there's an unconscious and so on. But there's always an attempt to couch this in, in scientific language, especially in Freud, but also in the case of Jung. And what happened in the third generation of psychoanalysis, especially James Hillman, who was a very important figure in the Jungian world, they started to say, one second, we've lost sight of a very basic idea which psychoanalysis grew from, the idea of the soul. But the idea that there is something deep or mysterious which isn't entirely grasped by scientific methods. And the interesting thing is that when you look at the translations of Freud from German, let's say, to English, in what's called the standard edition of the English translation of Freud, you see that the, the German language is far more close to the language of the soul than the English translations. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you, how did you get interested in the topic? Um, you know, what, what in your sort of academic training led you to, to have an interest in this? Well, really, this topic brings together three, three areas of interest. Uh, first of all, I've been studying the Kabbalah for about 35 years. I started to study Kabbalah here in Jerusalem before I, several years before I started to study in university. Um, and then being, growing up, so to speak, in this world of Kabbalah, modern Kabbalah, my natural focus was the modern Kabbalistic text. That was the uh, pre-epidemic training. 
in academia, I was exposed to a different approach. My teacher, Moshe Idol, and so on. In America, I think they call him Idel. Uh, so, very training in university is more medievalistic. That is, the, the focus was on pre-modern Kabbalah. And what I did in my academic career is I gradually moved back to focusing on the modern text because I really do believe that for the last 400 years and so on, these have been the main texts that are of interest for Kabbalists and this is what has defined the Kabbalistic world for the last 300 years. Not to disparage the importance of pre-modern Kabbalah, it's a basis, of course, and in that academia is correct. And so there's two really lines of interest here. One is my uh, my training, early training in modern Kabbalah, and also my academic training, which was moved from pre-modern to modern Kabbalah. And then, I, since around 1990, I've been very interested in the ideas of James Hillman and his whole school. I also was in contact with James. He, he passed away a few years ago. I was in contact with him. It was a very interesting correspondence. He didn't do email and all that. It was part of his sort of, I guess, reaction against the modern world. So Finney would send him a fax and then he would send you a postcard and so on. Uh, so that is the third area of interest, which was my interest in uh, um, in Hillman and in the whole what's called post-Jungian world, the whole which has really got very strongly into popular culture, this whole interest in the soul, in archetypes, in individuation, in all these ideas around the individual soul. So really there were three things, and I think one can even throw in a fourth thing of Buddhist psychology, but maybe we'll keep it simple for now. Mm-hmm. Before we get into sort of the meat of the book, um, you know, on a sort of larger scale, what is your sort of interest in, you know, uh, melding religion or religious studies and psychology and the social sciences? And and should psychology be more front and center in Jewish studies? Well, generally, I think we need to have more dialogue between um, Jewish studies, religious studies in general, and the social sciences. I think the social sciences, basically, I always say when when I start a class of my students, I say, look, what we're doing, we're dealing with people, except that most of the people that we're dealing with are dead. But that's the main difference between us and the social sciences. The social sciences focus more on people who are alive, and we focus on people who are no longer alive. But we've got a shared focus on people, on human beings. Now, I think the social sciences is what they offer. They have many methods of sociology, anthropology, psychology, political science, which help us appreciate how people function as individuals, as groups, as states, as political entities. But what the humanity has been is the historical depth, the languages, the classical languages, the literatures going back hundreds or thousands of years. And I think that this can be a very fruitful synthesis. The only thing is that we shouldn't fall into the trap, as I was saying before, of reducing the religious world to psychology, which is a very young science or sociology, which is even younger. What we need to do is let each realm stand on its own and understand it in its own terms and then see if we can create some kind of dialogue. Right. So the book really picks up in the 16th century, and you touched on this, but maybe you can help us explore a little more. Why is uh, Sfat or Safed so important, uh, and who are the sort of key figures to know? Well, that's a great riddle, what made it so important. So Gilsham Scholem fought, but this is uh, uh, the new center which emerges after the expulsion from Spain. I think historically it's correct, the, the refugees from Spain, they traveled along the Mediterranean coast through North Africa, through Greece and Italy and Turkey. They seem to converge at some points on the Galilee as a sort of major trade route leading from North Africa to the Near East uh, and also with connections to Turkey and so on. So that's, that's a historical explanation. What happened also is that we had these tremendously charismatic figures. The main one is Yitzhak Luria, who's really the most central modern Kabbalist, uh, who arrived in Seth in Seffield and really took it by a whirlwind. That is, he was there for about two years, but he managed to captivate the imagination, the soul, so to speak, of uh, of major Kabbalists, 
especially through his powers, the, the, the sense that they had that he could read people's soul, that he could give us diagnosis, like I was saying before, but like a modern therapist in that sense, he was able to di- diagnose the state of the soul and people's reincarnate, previous incarnations and what is the tikkun, what is the rectification they need uh, in order to sort themselves out and how all this is related to the messianic process. And people really placed a lot of messianic hopes. Of course, his, when he, he passed away after only two years in, in the city, in the town, this was a great blow. And a lot of modern Kabbalah is a response to this mourning, this uh, it's a psychological process of trying to fill this tremendous absence left by Yitzhak Luria. Now, there were also very other, very important other figures in Sfat. And it's interesting if one actually goes to Sfat, one can actually go to the graveyard and see the graves and go to the synagogues where they prayed. There's something very exciting about it in a way. And um, these other figures, I'll just mention one of them, uh, uh, Yosef Karo, who wrote the, the most central book of modern Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, the, the table of law, in which one can uh, just, uh, as the, the expression is, one can just sit down and eat. It's a table which is already all set, which lays down the law from the moment one gets up to the moment one goes to sleep. And this is for Orthodox, so-called Orthodox, I don't like that expression so much, but for Jews who follow this book, this is the main codification of Jewish law till this day. So we see that in Kabbalah and in Halakha, in Jewish law, the products of fat of determining these are the formative texts of this very day. Tell us a little bit about the psychology of uh, Hasidism or, or the Hasidic movement. Um, how, how did those early ideas develop um, late in, uh, later into the modern period and, and into Europe? Well, this is, uh, of course, fast forward in a bit, a couple of hundred years, but I think that is the, uh, another major wave, another major revolution. The important thing about Hasidism, the difference between Hasidism and Sfat, there was a very strong influence of Luria and so on, and other Safidian figures, Karo, etc., on Hasidism. But I think the important thing is that in the case of Sfat, we were speaking about circles. We could have a group of 10, 20 people focused on this charismatic leader. And it, of course, it's... It, it percolated, it did influence the life of the town as a whole, but we're still speaking about a small town. Now, in the case of the Hasidic movement, we've got a mass movement that within two generations, three generations, it has hundreds and thousands of followers, tens of thousands at least, and it conquers entire vast parts of Eastern Europe, of Russia, Poland, the Ukraine, uh, Hungary, etc., Romania, Lithuania. It really takes over a big part of the Jewish world of Eastern and Central Europe, and this is a really astounding phenomenon. Now, one of the interesting things about Hasidism is that the focus on psychology, which is already strong in Sfat, becomes even stronger. That is, they reinterpret the, the teachings of, of Luria and other writings of Kabbalah as really very much focused on the individual, and especially on the emotional life, because I think the real innovation of Hasidism was to give the emotions their due, to speak a lot about states of sadness and of joy, and how to move from one to another, uh, and how to contend with life's challenges. So I would say two things. One is this, this focus on emotion, and the second, a focus on everyday life. That is, the, the, not just this elitist idea of mystical circles, but the idea that what they call the simple Jew, the common Jew, the life of in, these individuals living, uh, sometimes not very learned, living in villages, contending with the, the difficulties of Jewish life in Eastern and Central Europe, with anti-Semitism, with economic difficulties, the troubles, the woes, the sorrows, this becomes very, very central for, for, for Kabbalistic reflection. And the idea that the Kabbalistic system is not speaking so much about the big rectification of a messianic era, etc., but it's actually speaking about the daily life of Jews. What is uh, national mysticism? And, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, a subject that may be less familiar, um, and that's uh, modern Italian Kabbalah. 
Well, that's, that's a development which begins a bit before Hasidism, and this is almost a counterpart, because in Hasidism we've got this move, like I was saying, to the individual, and that's a modern move. The, the move to the individual is certainly a modern move, the move to everyday life is a modern move, but then we've got another modern, another player in modernity, and that's the state. And since the 16th century, again, the same 16th century, the state has become a very central player in the lives of Jews. If a state is, is uh, lenient towards the Jews, of course, the first modern state really uh, based on a, a Catholic identity in Spain was the same state that expelled the Jews. It was also the same state that it d- discovered, so to speak, quote unquote, the Americas um, or Spain. And then we've got this very complex relationship to the state. And one reaction to this development is the beginning of Jewish nationalism in a modern sense. The idea of a nation is adopted and it's given a Jewish development, it's given a Kabbalistic development. Now, the the pinnacle of this, the summit of all this is, of course, Zionism and religious Zionism, which maybe we can go into later. But what I wanted to do in the book is to go to the roots of this development. And the first um, major figure speaking along this vein of what I call national Kabbalah, is a very interesting figure that I actually devoted a biography to in Hebrew, Moshe Chaim Lutzato, um, who was a very young man who developed this mystical circle in this pattern of Luria, had all these mystical revelations and so on, and reinterpreted the Kabbalah, but unlike the Hasidim who reinterpreted the Kabbalah in terms of the individual and everyday life, he reinterpreted Kabbalah in terms of history. And this approach was actually taken up by the opponents of the Hasidim, to interpret the Kabbalah in terms of history, and especially the history of a Jewish nation. And the, this development eventually led to uh, the religious Zionist, Messianic, and Kabbalistic ideas, which were part of the formation of Zionism, even a bit before Zionism, in the 19th and 20th century. So we've got another line here, which is a line of um, the modern focus on the, of the state of a nation, which complements the modern focus on the state of the individual. And then as we move into the 20th century, what, what sort of changes? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about a figure that I, I wasn't familiar with, but who seems really interesting, and that's Rabbi Huda Halevi Ashlag. Yes. Well, the 20th century, of course, is a century of tremendous changes. I mentioned psychoanalysis before. One can think of modern physics and sociology, which developed. And, of course, for the Jewish people, the, the two huge, uh, uh, tremendous changes, one, of course, the tragic one, the Holocaust, and the other, the state of Israel, and the whole change of the, the geography of the Jewish world, and all, one can mention a third development, which is the development of a very strong, very prosperous Jewish center in the United States, especially in the 20th century, especially after the Holocaust. Now, um, in Israel, we have, besides what I mentioned before, the beginning of modern research of Kabbalah, Gershom Sholem, and so on, we also have uh, two very interesting figures who, again, demonstrate two poles, these two poles of, of Kabbalah. And one, I would say, is the, the sociologist of Kabbalah or, or the social psychologist of Kabbalah, Rabbi Levi Ashlag, who comes to Jerusalem in the 1920s. And he, um, what he does is he develops interpretation of Kabbalah in terms of history, however, which is like, a bit like national Kabbalah, but his twist is a socialist twist. That is, he takes Kabbalah in the direction of socialism. But it's socialist psychology, because he says that the main problem of human beings is the ego, the self-centeredness, what he calls the desire to receive. We need the lack, we need all the time to receive something, through consumerism and so on. And this has to be transmuted, this has to be transposed into the will to give, the desire to benefit, to give to others. And this process 
is a psychological process, and he felt that the best way to do it is through Kabbalah. That is, he felt that secular socialism is not going to change human nature. And therefore, he predicted in the 1940s, 50s, that eventually the whole Soviet bloc will fall apart. And the kibbutz movement always will fall apart because it's not based on a true change in human nature that for him can come only through the Kabbalah. So that's one poll, which is a view to Ashlag, the, again, the historical direction, but with a Marxist kind of twist. Now, the second person who was in contact with Rabbi Ashlag and also came to Jerusalem in the 1920s is Rabbi Avrami Tzrak Kuk, who was the first uh, Ashkenazi, that is, uh, representing the Jews from, from Europe, chief rabbi of Pal- what is then called Palestine under the British rule. And he's a, the founder of the Kabbalistic wing of religious Zionism. And really the spiritual father, especially through his son, of what's called the Gushimuni movement, the settler movement in the West Bank. And he took this whole idea of national Kabbalah, of national mysticism, to new uh, levels of intensity, I would say, in identifying the expression he used even before they decided officially on the name of the state, our state, the state of Israel, as God's throne in the world. The idea that uh, uh, the, the divine presence is expressed through the revitalization of the Jewish people in the land of Israel through the Zionist movement, which is a very bold move because he is willing to vindicate a secular movement uh, like Zionism and to say that this has a deep religious and messianic meaning. Now, Rabbi Ashlag also makes a very bold move because he's willing to take an anti-religious, atheistic movement like Marxism uh, and uh, communism and say, okay, this is also an expression of a divine will. So the both of them take in modernity and reinterpreting it as part of the divine will manifesting and saying in history and saying that the Kabbalah offers the best key for understanding this process. We've touched on um, two figures who I think are sort of important in your life, but maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about them. One is Gershom Sholem, who, you, as you mentioned, uh, is the, uh, the, ch- the chair that you hold, is the Gershom Sholem chair. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about who he was. And the other is James Hillman, who uh, was very important to you. So maybe you can just tell us briefly about those two figures. Well, well Gershom Sholem is actually it's interesting because at the same time that uh, Rabbi Ashlag and Rav Kuk come to Jerusalem in the 1920s, by the way, in the same time, more or less, that the first psychoanalysts arrived in Jerusalem, Gershom Sholem also arrives from Germany, the same central European center, of, of, which also the same area, more or less, culturally, in which psychoanalysis develops. And uh, Sholem, he really uh, makes Kabbalah into a respectable, respectable scientific discipline. He's got the story that he comes to somebody who's considered an expert in Kabbalah, and he sees all his Kabbalistic books on his shelves, and he starts to talk to him about it, and this guy says to him, what, I also have to read this nonsense? Not enough that I collect the books. And then Sholem understood that the scientific world really looks down on Kabbalah as something primitive, archaic, uh, uh, outworn. And Sholem's enterprise, which I think he was tremendously successful in doing so, was to make the Kabbalah a respectable scientific discipline. And basically, all the Kabbalah scholars in Israel, the United States, and elsewhere, and as many of them, are really following in many ways in his footsteps. And of course, he's still a very strong, looming presence, even if people argue with him and react against him, he still sets the tone. Now, Hillman uh, is also an interesting character, growing up in a, a, a Jewish-American family in Atlantic City, and then eventually wandering to Europe during the Second World War, going through all kinds of experiences, going to India, having mystical experiences, and as he said, it, put it himself, becoming more and more neurotic, because as often happens, he can't really digest these spiritual experiences because his psychological strength is not sufficient. And then doing the training in Zurich, in the Jung Center, uh, studying with Carl Jung, studying with other major figures, and going through all kinds of processes, all kinds of scandals, and so on, and moving back to the United States, and then really developing this whole school, which has 
impacted uh, popular culture in many ways. Uh, one example is what's called the men's movement, which is a controversial movement that has sort of awakened, uh, I would say, uh, people's awareness of psychological issues related to masculinity, and Hillman was one of the guiding figures there. And also having a very strong effect on, on literature and on, uh, uh, on liter and on the arts and so on. Um, now, Hillman, he main, if we can say two things about what he, he, he stressed. One is the idea that he called pathologizing, the idea that we have to uh, look at our, our, our diseases, our hang-ups, our shadow, as the Jungians call it, and uh, be aware, feel that these are not problems getting interfering in, in our daily functioning. That is, a lot of the capitalist world is about being efficient and getting ahead and so on and succeeding and humans, and then seeing all these hang-ups as interferences. And humans says, actually, listen to the message that these problems are presenting us. See the inner figures, see the, the, the inner figures that are coming through, through these problems, through our dreams, and be able to be with more, in more dialogue with them. And I found it very interesting from a Kabbalistic point of view. When my correspondence with Hillman, he wrote to me that he likes Kabbalah very much. And I, I don't know how much he had the tools to really understand why he liked Kabbalah so much, because it wasn't his field. But I think that he, he intuited very well about Kabbalah. But there's the same idea, the idea that the, the various parts of our personalities, so the Kabbalists describe them as leftovers from previous incarnations or various things that we need to fix, that all these problems are really opportunities, that these things that we shouldn't view them as obstacles, the way, as the Hasidim said, we should view them as opportunities. I think Rabbi Cook himself put it once, he said, in the, in the, in the mud of sadness you can find gems, you can find gold. And I think that very much expresses Hillman's approach to the psyche. That was one thing. And the other thing is um, Hillman's idea that one has to follow not abstract systems of thoughts, which Kabbalah can also fall into this uh, pitfall of of abstraction, but actually look at the images. Look what kind of imagery is going on here. Look at what the pictures are. And that's why I think Hillman was very attractive for people in the arts and literature, especially with something which has developed tremendously in today's world, which is movies, because it's a language of images, not so much a language of abstract ideas. Well, Jonathan, we're running short on time, so I want to conclude by asking you about, uh, you know, today, 2016. What, what can we say about uh, psychology, um, the psyche, mysticism, and politics? Well, it's a big one, but uh, I would say, uh, first of all, I think a lot of people have a sense that the world is going a bit crazy the last year or so. <laughs> and uh, and Hillman would say, okay, that's, that means that the world was always a bit crazy, just that now it's, it's not repressed so much anymore. Uh, there was some kind of functioning going on which was hiding people's deeper fears and, and anger and so on, and, and maybe this is a positive process. So that's one thing I would say in terms of the political, both in Israel and the United States and in, in Britain elsewhere. Now, the second thing I would say is in terms of psychology, I think psychology is in a very interesting moment. Psychoanalysis is far less in fashion, but we've got something new, which is this whole, two new things. One is this whole uh, takeover of brain sciences, which I'm less happy about because I feel it's something reductionist. The soul, again, is getting lost in the scientific language. And the other thing is this very great openness to Buddhism. That is the idea that Buddhist psychology has a lot to teach us. And I think this is a very good model for what we can do with Kabbalah. Because a lot of psychologists in the United States especially, but elsewhere also, are beginning to understand that Buddhism is a resource for psychological theory. But these are people who have really thought very deeply about the mind for several thousands of years and experimented through meditation. And hopefully we'll get to the same place with Kabbalah, uh, even though it's less obviously accessible to the Western world because its language is somewhat more convoluted. Thank you. Um, any any parting thoughts you'd like to share, Jonathan? And uh, what are you working on next? 
Well, I'm writing this big history of modern Kabbalah, so it's a narrative history, which is a, a new kind of game for me, is to try and tell a story. Uh, and basically covering the history of Kabbalah from Tzvat till today, and it's a project which will take a few years. Uh, and generally, I feel that we're the exciting moment, really, uh, in the history of Kabbalah scholarship. There's a lot of methods opening up, there's a lot of great new young scholars, and I think the field is really in a good place uh, and developing nicely. And... Um, and of course, all the, again, I would take a sort of psychological approach to it and say that all our disputes and arguments and so on are really just part of this process of development. And uh, ultimately, all these family issues, these Oedipal issues with Sholem and so on and with Sholem students, I think all this is, uh, is grist for the mill uh, and it can be used for our own reflection and our own development. Great. Jonathan, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Yearnings of the Soul, Psychological Thought in Modern Kabbalah published in 2015 by the University of Chicago Press. The author is Jonathan Garb. Thank you for listening, and check us out next time on New Books in Jewish Studies.